Hello, I'm Daryl Root, and this is the News Folder 19 Podcast. 19 minutes of sense, sarcasm, and occasional wit. This is episode number 120, or about the combined IQ of Congress. Today is a serious topic, Israel and Gaza, so let's get right into it. First, let me clearly state I am in no way condoning what Hamas did to Israel. However, based on what Israel has done over the last 50 plus years, I'm completely understanding of the attacks. Again, I'm not saying it is correct, only that I understand it. Gaza is for all intents and purposes a prison controlled by Israel. So let's start with a brief history of the Gaza Strip. Gaza is a coastal strip of land that lies on ancient trading and maritime routes along the Mediterranean shore. Held by the Ottoman Empire since 1300, for about 600 years until 1917, it passed from British to Egyptian to Israeli military rule over the last century and is now a fenced-in enclave inhabited by over 2 million Palestinians. When British rule came to an end in Palestine in 1948, violence intensified between Jews and Arabs, culminating in war between the newly created state of Israel, which was carved out of Arab lands, and its Arab neighbors. Tens of thousands of Palestinians took refuge in Gaza after fleeing or being driven from their homes. The invading Egyptian army had seized the narrow coastal strip of 25 miles, which saw an influx of Arab refugees. Egypt held the Gaza Strip in the 50s and 60s under a military governor, allowing Palestinians to work and study in Egypt. Some armed Palestinian refugees mounted attacks into Israel, drawing reprisals. Israel then captured the Gaza Strip from Egypt in the 1967 Middle East War. Most of Gaza's population were made up of refugees unable to do battle. This was a conquering of land similar to what Russia is attempting to do to Ukraine today. With the Egyptians gone, many Gazan workers took jobs in agriculture, construction, and service industries inside of Israel, to which they could gain easy access at that time. Israeli troops remained to administer the territory and to guard the settlements that Israel built in the following decades. Again, it's an occupied territory. These became a source of growing Palestinian resentment, much like Ukraine now resents Russia's invasion and intervention. Twenty years after the 1967 war, Palestinians launched their first uprising. Seizing the angry mood, the Egyptian-based Muslim Brotherhood created an armed Palestinian branch called Hamas, with its power based in Gaza. Hamas arguably is dedicated to Israel's destruction and restoration of Islamic rule in what it saw as an occupied Palestine. Israel and Palestinians signed a historic peace accord in 1993 that led to the creation of the Palestinian Authority. 
Under the interim deal, Palestinians were first given limited control in Gaza and Jericho in the West Bank, which, remember, was theirs to begin with. The Oslo process was supposed to provide statehood for five years, but that never happened. Israel accused the Palestinians of reneging on security agreements, and Palestinians were angered by continued Israeli settlement building. Hamas carried out bombings to try and derail the peace process, leading Israel to impose even more restrictions on the movement of Palestinians out of Gaza. In 2000, Israeli-Palestinian relations sank to a new low with the outbreak of the second Palestinian Infitada. Till all was said and done, Israel destroyed the Gaza International Airport, the Palestinians' only direct link to the outside world that was not controlled by Israel or Egypt. In addition, another casualty was Gaza's fishing industry, a source of income for tens of thousands. Gaza's fishing zone was reduced by Israel, a restriction it claims was necessary to stop boats smuggling weapons. In August 2005, Israel evacuated all its troops and settlers from Gaza, which was by then completely fenced off from the outside world by Israel. In essence, it was a prison. Palestinians had little choice but to build a tunnel economy as armed groups, smugglers, and entrepreneurs quickly dug scores of tunnels into Egypt. The pullout also removed settlement factories, greenhouses, and workshops that had employed some Gazans. In 2006, Hamas scored a surprise victory in Palestinian parliamentary elections and then seized full control of Gaza. Much of the international community cut aid to the Palestinians in Hamas-controlled areas because they regarded Hamas as a terrorist organization. Israel stopped tens of thousands of Palestinian workers from entering the country, cutting off an important source of income. Financial oppression, that is. Israeli airstrikes crippled Gaza's only electrical power plant, causing widespread blackouts. Quality of life oppression. Citing security concerns, Israel and Egypt also imposed higher restrictions on the movement of people and goods through the Gaza crossings. So there you had the freedom of movement oppression. Viewing Hamas as a threat, Egypt closed the border with Gaza and blew up most of the tunnels. Once again, isolated, Gaza's economy went into reverse. Again, oppression. Gaza's economy has suffered repeatedly in the cycle of conflict, attack, and retaliation between Israel and Palestinian militant groups. Some of the worst fighting was in 2014 when Hamas and other groups launched rockets at heartland cities in Israel. Israel carried out airstrikes and artillery bombardment that devastated neighborhoods in Gaza. More than 2,100 Palestinians were killed, mostly civilians. Israel put the number of its dead at a mere 67 soldiers and 6 civilians compared to 2,100 Palestinians. And then we wonder why Hamas gunmen launched a surprise attack on Israel, rampaging through towns, killing hundreds, and taking dozens of hostages back to Gaza. And Israel, of course, will retaliate fivefold or more for whatever Hamas has 
done. As I have stated, Israel is just as guilty of oppression in this area of the world as all the other Middle East countries, maybe even more so. I am not anti-Jew, but I am anti-aggression. I wouldn't give Israel a penny until a complete withdrawal and return of annexed lands are returned back to Palestinians. Now let's look at some numbers thus far with the latest attacks and the latest war. The Israeli dead number about 1,400 up to this point. Based on the country's population, that's the equivalent of killing about 49,000 Americans. Granted, that's a horrible number. No one should wish for that much death. But let's look at the number of Palestinian dead, now believed to be about 2,800. Based on their population, that's the American equivalent of 407,000 dead, or nine times the rate of the Israeli dead. This isn't about striking back at Hamas. It's about the annihilation of the Palestinians in general. Need more proof? Israel has shut off virtually all access to water and electricity in Gaza because they can. 90% of the water in Gaza is already undrinkable, and the remaining 10% is no longer accessible. Gazans have resorted to drinking seawater and water from a lone aquifer polluted with sewage and seawater. Again, that's not an attack on Hamas, that's a direct assault on Palestinian citizens. Israel has totally cut off all humanitarian aid to Gaza, not letting any supplies get through. Again, that's not about attacking Hamas, that's about attacking Palestinians in general. Supposedly, Egypt will start letting Gazans through their border today due to international backlash, but Israel is not letting Gazans escape anywhere. Israel won't admit it, but the open agenda of attacking Hamas is really a hidden agenda of what I would call a genocide. Netanyahu is a nutcase. Him coming back to power was the worst thing that could have happened in the Middle East. In addition, Israel isn't targeting any particular Hamas buildings in Gaza. They're targeting entire neighborhoods without a single thought about who may be in them and they're using hostages as an excuse to continue doing such bombardments. I've said it numerous times on this podcast, Israel will not stop provoking war until they control every last acre of Palestinian land against international treaties. Just look at the map of Israel. 75 years ago, that was all Palestinian lands. What's the U.S. response? Well, the geriatric population of our Congress wants to give Israel more aid so they can continue to bomb away at will. Sad to say, my generation is still a bunch of racist pigs who do little thinking for themselves. However, there is hope. Ironically, it comes from the youth of America, a group that I usually love to pick on. But this time, I want to commend them. Studies suggest that 40% of those under the age of 40 say the U.S. should remain neutral in this war, as do I. Only 20% of them support Israel in this conflict, less than half the rate of America's old folk population. 
Heck, one member of my generation, a landlord geezer in Chicago, knocked on the door of one of his Muslim tenants, choked and stabbed the mother, and then proceeded to stab the six-year-old 26 times. You heard that correctly, 26 times, and supposedly stated, you Muslims must die. This is in America, people. And obviously, in this case, being stabbed 26 times, the child did die. As for respondents in general, 49% blame Hamas for the war, while 9% blame Israel. So, at least 9% of our population actually knows what's going on over there. There's a word for it, which I unfortunately can't remember, but here's how it works. Israel uses small, non-newsworthy provocations that only get back-page status, if that, knowing that sooner or later, Hamas will retaliate on a scale big enough to get worldwide attention, which is exactly what happened. That then gives Israel a reason to strike back against the Palestinians, annex their lands to the point where they only own 22% of what they once had, and they do it with the world's blessings, to the American equivalent of 407,000 dead, or nine times the destruction that Palestinians put on Israel. It's not about retaliation against Hamas, it's about elimination of Palestinians. And story number two, there's only two today. This is a much lighter but still serious privacy topic. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a Delete Act last week, supposedly making it possible for Californians to either ask data brokers to delete their personal data or forbid them to sell or share it with a single request. Right now, Californians have similar rights under a 2018 state law, but they had to ask each company individually, and that's a tall order given the almost 500 data brokers operating in the state. But will the new law actually make a difference? Like Biden getting a brain? Probably not. By August 1st, 2026, data brokers will have to check for and honor new requests every 45 days. After removing the data as requested, brokers can still gather data, but will have to delete it at the same 45-day interval. Listen closely. Brokers can still gather data. Only now, it will be in 45-day increments instead of a constant flow. But, like a puzzle, one just has to put the pieces together to get the full picture. Do you really think they will destroy that data? I'll get to that shortly. Since people in a state can make a persistent, not one-time and permanent, request to have their data deleted or kept private, they won't be able to sell the data without permission, which, if you follow tech news, big tech completely ignores those rules anyway. How will the destruction of data supposedly be enforced? Here it is. Starting January 2028, independent audits every three years will verify brokers' compliance. So in other words, Data brokers can continue to defy the law, gather and keep your data for three years, 
far beyond the 45-day period that the Delete Act requires as long as they destroy the data prior to that three-year audit. That's going to be the reality. This Act does nothing. How do we know they won't put the data in a hidden server somewhere and bring it back after the audit? The law needs to be simplified for real protection. No selling of anyone's data ever without clear and distinct permission. The Los Angeles Times quoted California Senator Josh Becker, the bill's author, as saying that brokers sell thousands of individual consumers' data points on reproductive health care, geolocation, and purchasing data to the highest bidder, adding that the Delete Act protects our most sensitive information. No, it doesn't, and it's not going to work. Here's another problem with the bill. The Delete Act applies to companies that gross more than $25 million in revenue for the year before and annually buys, sells, or shares the personal information of 100,000 or more consumers or households and only affects those businesses that make at least 50% of their annual revenue from the sale of people's personal information. Notice all the ands in that sentence, not ors, but ands. So unless a company meets all three criteria, they can just keep on collecting. One positive, the law considers several alternative scenarios like joint business ventures and doesn't just apply to single businesses that trade in personal data. So yeah, California is coming out saying they're going to protect your data, but in reality, this law is going to do nothing. We need a law nationwide that says no selling of data ever. And with that, let's call it another podcast. Please tune in next week. Have a great day.